0: to the sweet spot on a farm episode 38. If you just randomly tune in and have no idea what this podcast is about then the sweet spot is all about natural health. I talk about natural health and fitness and I talk to natural health and fitness professionals and anyone whose business and life's mission it is to help us support our health. We cover topics like organic farming, herbalism, fitness training, natural therapies, and we also talk a lot about food and share plant-based nutritious recipes that support and nourish our body. Um, Today, we are actually on a farm We are on Colmore Organic Farm. I don't know if I pronounce it right, but David might (laughs) correct me later. And we're in Killaray, Coleraine in Northern Ireland. And I am very happy to be talking to the current owner and one of the most progressive organic farmers today in this country, David Lachlan. Hi, David. Hi, how
1: are you? Good, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you.
0: We will be talking about this place and your farming practices today, um, if it is not a secret, of course. Yeah, <laughs> but first, I need to say a big thanks to uh, Varin mm-hmm. Marshall from Azarokov, because he told me about you ages ago. But it's only been very recently that I connected the dots and realized that the David he was talking about and you are the same person. (laughs) Because I'm kind of, I'm a little bit slow. But um, it was actually my partner who figured it out because um, he buys produce from you pretty much every week. And I think it was the first time or the second time he um, brought some stuff from you from the Helen's Day Organic Farm Shop. And he was like, you need to talk to this guy and that's when it kind of hit me and I realized that you and Barnes David are the same person but uh, let's introduce the farm first because um, some people may never heard of you and I think that your farm plays a really significant role in the ways the farming industry should steer so um, tell me about the farm what is Colmore Organic Farm what do you do here and why?
1: Col- Colmore Organic Farm is a farm that has been in our family now for just shy of 100 years, 98 years. My grandfather bought the farm in 1922 and the family has lived here ever since in one form or other. So when my grandfather uh, retired, my father took over the running of the farm. Then when he retired, I took over the running of the farm. And now that I'm retiring, my son is taking over the running of the farm. So. Uh, Andrew is now the fourth generation. Uh, The farm back in the early 1900s would have been run pretty much organically anyway because they had no access to agrochemicals, fertilizers, anything that we take uh, as almost par for the course today. And uh, my father grew up through the progressive years, as it were, uh, the Industrial Revolution, post-Second World War, the hungry years as they knew them, And he uh, saw the development of agriculture from its rawest form to what we now refer to as intensive farming. And that was normal at that stage because the country was hungry after the war. People were hungry. Uh, They didn't have access to that many foods. Uh, The quality control in foods was non-existent, Uh, although sometimes I wish nowadays it was non-existent again. Uh, and I'll explain that a little later on. Uh, so he developed the farm from a relatively small farm of 40 acres uh, and a, a mixed farm with uh, six or eight cows, some pigs, some sheep, some cattle, some uh, hens, uh, some cropping. Uh, they, they Like most farms, they grew various crops, uh, flax being one of the more important crops for linen. Uh, and they grew... Uh, Cereal crops that would feed the pigs and the chickens, uh, as well as the cattle. Uh, and the interesting thing was, we we now uh, have about 30 acres of forestry, uh, which we would we would consider an energy crop. Uh, and in my father's time and my grandfather's time, before the advent of heavy machinery, uh, they had set set aside about 25% of the area of the farm as what they would have termed energy crops. And uh, they were slightly different in usage because their energy crops fed the animals that did the work. So they fed the horses that were ploughing and so on. Uh, And it's quite interesting now, just the way it has worked out, that our energy crop area equates to about 25% of the total farm. Uh, So it it has developed from, as I say, probably an an organic farm in the early 1900s right through to a very traditional intensive farm uh, and now back to a more extensive organic and certified organic farm uh, where we again have gone back to a lot of the traditional methods, uh, including home sales. Uh, My my grandmother used to sell all her eggs from the farm and that was her housekeeping money. Uh, A lot of the milk was sold directly to local people. A lot of the bacon was sold directly to local people. Uh, We got away from that in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, I guess. Uh, Well, certainly the 60s, 70s and 80s uh, because there were all sorts of farming cooperatives and uh, food produce was sold through the farming cooperatives uh, which have since developed into... Really big multinational companies, uh, and they don't care so much for the farmer nowadays. They care more for their own profits, uh, and the farmer basically takes what is left in the pot at the end of the at the end of the day. Now, uh, so we we made a decision about twenty years ago that we would start and sell our own produce, uh, and bring the food supply chain value back to the farm. I had a first-time customer pulled into the yard one day in a very fancy BMW, uh, talking a £50,000 car, and he stepped out, a beautiful suit, beautiful pair of shoes, obviously a guy that had a few pounds in his pocket, and he wanted two fillet steaks. And I lifted two fillet steaks out of the freezer, weighed them, and I said, that's £14, please. And he kind of did a double take, but he paid me for it. And I came back into the house, and I said to Anne, I don't think we'd see that boy back again. I think he thought the meat was very dear, and he, we didn't see him for three weeks. But he came back again, and he ordered two more steaks, and I charged him fourteen pounds again. And I couldn't help myself but say I didn't think we would see you back because I thought I thought your reaction to the first meat was that it was too expensive. And he said I did think it was too expensive, but my wife sent me to Tesco's the following week to buy two organic fillets. And that was 19 pounds something. And he said they were terrible. We had to put them in the bin. So they are now dedicated customers and they don't ask the price of anything anymore. They just buy what they want and they pay for it. And uh, they're, as I say, they're regular customers. So uh, so that's where we are now. Um, we now run about 250 acres in total, including the forestry. Uh, It's a much more extensive system. Uh, At one stage, my father and I were milking about 180 cows. We've now pulled that back to about 90. Uh, We used to fatten about 100 beef cattle every year. We've now pulled that away back to a little over two dozen. uh, And all of those are sold through our farm shop. Uh, And the the, the profit from that is significantly uh, greater than the big scale intensive farming. And that's really what we have aimed for: is more independence uh, on farm income uh, and a greater uh, uh, autonomy, as it were, uh, for the farm itself.
0: There is a huge difference between intensive farming and the way you do things, yeah. and a lot of people do not quite understand that, and yeah. um, it's. I know, it's, especially in the recent years, there is this big misconception, especially in, I'm sorry, vegans, but especially in the vegan community, that all farming, when it concerns animals, is bad for the environment, and it's bad food stop, and we shouldn't be doing it. I have a feeling it's not as simple as that. And I do firmly believe that there is a huge difference between intensive farming and the way you do things.
1: Intensive farming uh, basically requires a huge chemical input. Uh, And if you look at any of the chemicals that we input under uh, intensive farming situations, all of them are bad for the environment. Uh, And by the environment, I mean starting with the soil, when we spray herbicides, pesticides, or fungicides onto the soil, not only do they affect the soil and the plants that grow in them, but they affect the microflora of the soil. And what is happening with intensive farming is that our soils are becoming more and more sterile. Uh, So basically there's less and less life in the soil. And there have been studies done worldwide uh, to prove this. And with less life in the soil, uh, the soil just becomes a medium for growing things in that we have to input all the plant requirements. So nutrients uh, fungicides, pesticides, herbicides, uh, and we use these ad infinitum, as it were. Uh, and our soils, we, we basically get into a, a vicious circle that as we destroy our soil and environment, we must use more chemicals to uh, maintain the level of output. And the, the same side of that coin is then that we are producing more and more food uh, we're trying to compete in a global commodity market. Uh, that's impossible, to my way of thinking anyway, uh, for a small country like Northern Ireland that, that is geographically removed from uh, any main continent. Uh, we, we are competing against people that have better soils, better climates uh, and much, much more land. Uh, and if Northern Ireland stopped producing food tomorrow it would be insignificant on the world global commodity market. So, to my mind, we we need to be thinking about adding value, producing artisan foods and adding value to it. Otherwise, we, we will not compete and survive in the long term.
0: That is, I think, especially in... Today's political climate um, and everything that's going on with Brexit and so on, I think we definitely need to keep thinking local as well. And we need to think about it is important to feed ourselves before we try to, you know, compete in any other markets. And also if we kill our soils and produce food that has zero nutritional value we're going to end up importing foods either importing foods that do have nutritional value or just living on expensive supplements how many people can afford that It's, it's ridiculous so isn't it much cheaper to invest into growing and buying organic foods that are grown locally. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense it, to me. It,
1: it, it makes absolute sense to me as well. Uh, and, and the other side of that coin is that the more you chemicalise food, uh, I'm not sure if that's a proper word, but the more chemicals you put onto foods, the more chemicals by default we ingest as consumers. The more chemicals we ingest, uh, the, the, the more out of balance our body becomes uh, and the more health issues we have. And it's, it's very apparent and clear to see that over the years of intensive farming, all sorts of human disease problems have kicked in in a huge way. I mean, when we were children, everybody was like a stick insect. Uh, nowadays, children from the age of two, three, four uh, are becoming clinically obese. And a lot of it is to do with what they eat. Uh, OK, lifestyle has a certain amount to do with it, but a lot of it as far as I'm concerned, is to do with what they eat. Uh, so many highly processed foods with so many food additives that, again, are not good for the system, and the body system has to work hard to either uh, modify uh, or, or use these non-natural food additives. Uh, they also cause all sorts of allergies. They also cause all sorts of... Uh, issues with children's concentration spans, all sorts of things. Uh, and again, in my eyes, uh, we, we are creating a huge health problem which has a huge knock-on effect with the likes of our National Health Service. and They're treating more diabetes, more cancers, more strokes, more heart diseases than ever. Uh, and I'm talking on a percentage-wise. It's not just the growth of the population that's causing that. Uh, I mean, there are figures if you want to look them up to, to give us. Uh, I mean, the, 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 one of the more accepted figures is that one person in two nowadays will contract cancer at some stage through their lives. That, that's, that's a pretty scary figure. Uh, the level of diabetes and heart diseases and strokes are, are certainly on the rise. Uh, and again, I'm sure there's a figure within the NHS that will tell you what that is costing every year. Uh, and people talk about organic food being ex- expensive. How expensive is is it to have good health?
0: Yeah, that, and that's one of the things that um, many of us don't um, want to hear sure. uh, or don't realise. All that comes down to education, doesn't it? Cause, sure. I mean, when I was a child, we would do trips to farms. Yeah. We would know exactly how our food was grown. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I grew up... Um, with my grandparents and they had a garden we grew our own food so we knew i mean how many people today know what kohlrabi is or how what fennel looks like so education is a massive part of it but all this organic versus intensive how does it impact the animals
1: it has a huge impact on animals Uh, we we by default were intensive farmers when I left university and came home to farm. Uh, and at that time uh, we, we had a, a pretty serious health problem with baby calves being born. Uh, and we had a, a approaching a 30% mortality rate. That's one in three calves dying shortly after birth. And I had been fairly friendly with one of our veterinary lecturers at Queen's and he came down and did a lot of work for us at, at the time. Uh, and it was all caused by both selenium and iodine deficiency. So, uh, again, using using modern medicines, that was a pretty quick fix, although a temporary fix. Uh, and we were able to inject the cows with selenium selenide, uh, which is one of the safest and most available selenium. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't get the word. Supplement. Uh, yes. Uh, that you can give an animal. So the animal was able to assimilate it pretty quickly and, and it went into its system uh, and basically uh, negated the selenium deficiency that was there. Uh, same with iodine. It's, it's re- relatively easy to give cows an iodine bolus uh, into the rumen and they can. it's a slow releasing. But what we looked at at the time was a sustainable alternative uh, that gave us selenium and iodine intakes plus other uh, mineral and trace element intakes uh, that were balanced. Uh, and again, it was our lecturer from Queen's suggested that we would use seaweed meal, dried seaweed meal. And to this day, we use about four tonnes of seaweed meal every year to feed to the cows. Uh, and it was one of the best decisions that we ever made was to source and feed seaweed meal to the cows because the sea, again, as we were taught in our geology classes at Queen's, Uh, The sea is a complete medium, and anything that grows in the sea contains every trace element and mineral required for uh, proper growth. Uh, And although you can, as a farmer, buy all sorts of synthetic minerals and trace elements and vitamins and so on, uh, there is still, again, to my way of thinking, there's still not a better source of food supplements than natural dried seaweed.
0: And all life comes from the sea at of the course, today That's yeah. where everything came from. So that right. makes total sense.
1: It's, it's a big, big industry now. And the, the, again, one of the ironies of the seaweed industry is that we used to, uh, uh, I'm talking 35 years ago, when we started to buy dried seaweed meal from the west coast of Ireland, it cost about £80 pounds a tonne. And suddenly the Chinese and Japanese uh, pharmaceutical market decided that they wanted to use it for all sorts of things from face masks to mineral and trace element supplements. Uh, and now it's great for the seaweed industry. Now seaweed meal costs £1, a £1,000 a tonne. So uh, over, over 30 odd years, it has increased in value 12 fold. Uh, it makes it an expensive feed for the animals, but I still believe it's more than worth uh, what we have to pay for it. Uh, because our animals are in great health, uh, they have very low disease levels because once an animal starts to suffer from any, any sort of deficiency, it will be more susceptible to disease. Uh, uh, hand in hand with this goes the less intensive side of, the, of, of organic farming. Uh, if, if you're keeping 50 cows on, say, 50 acres, and you increase that to 100 cows on 50 acres... The 100 cows, by default and by uh, simple mathematics, the 100 cows are getting the same amount of minerals and trace elements that the 50 cows were getting. So that's half the amount per animal. So you then have to supplement that if you're going to be an intensive farmer. Uh, and intensive farming is very draining on soils and it causes more problems than it fixes. Uh, there is the line of thought that we could not feed the world organically, I believe that's absolute nonsense because the world, uh, if we look at the population of the world uh, in general, the world is becoming obese, which suggests to me that we are eating too much food. Uh, if we're eating too much food, then uh, if we eat a little less each, there would be more food to go around. and. The, the, the scientists would tell us that we need to become more and more intensive. I would really question that because I I believe that if we ate less good quality food, we would be healthier, we could feed more people, uh, we would be a, a much less of a drain on the National Health Service or whatever it is in the respective countries. Uh, and I, I firmly believe that we would be better off if everybody ate organic food.
0: I completely agree with that. And I also think in terms of the kind of meat eaters versus vegans question, what I do believe is, and it's exactly to what you just said, that I think when it comes to eating meat, and it's unreasonable to think that even if it did save the environment, there is no chance in the world that everybody in the world would suddenly overnight become vegan. That's not going to happen. So let's be realistic. If everybody reduced the amount of meat they're eating, then there would be less need for intensive farming. Exactly. Which means everybody would have have the opportunity to turn organic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's exactly what you say. We don't need to eat meat three times a day, every day, seven days a week. Mm. That's nonsense. It's just too much. Never, Not mentioning how much strain it puts on our digestive system. Exactly. (laughs) So... If we reduce it, and I mean, my grandparents used to eat meat usually only on Sundays, Mm -hmm. once a week, nice Sunday roast, or on special occasions like Christmas, Easter, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever bank holidays, Mm -hmm. you know, national or state holiday, whatever Mm -hmm. that was. It wasn't
1: every day, and I think that's exactly what needs to happen. Sure. It makes sense. I mean, animals were put on the planet for a purpose. Uh, Of course, they eat each other as well uh, as part of the circle of life. Uh, And there is this talk that uh, bovine animals or ruminant animals are adding a lot of greenhouse gases to the environment, We, we really need to put that into perspective and look back even 200, 300 years before the Americas were uh, colonized by modern man, let's say. Uh, and on the plains of Canada, there were 30 million bison or buffalo. Uh, there's only about 30,000 of them left now. Uh, same in Russia with the caribou or reindeer, same in Canada with the reindeers, same in Central America with, with buffalo or bison. Uh, and there are certainly not more cows in the world now than there than there traditionally were uh, buffalo, bison, and, and reindeers. So, you know, to say that cows are causing a, a massive greenhouse effect uh, is nonsense in 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 real terms. Uh, and if we compare it then to industrial greenhouse gas release. Uh, it's it, it equates probably only to about one or two percent of industry's use of fossil fuels so to be blaming cows for greenhouse gas and global warming is is nonsense it, it's just a, a thought that somebody has had one day and said okay let's hammer let's hammer the farmers again uh, and and let's uh, promote veganism uh, it's the way I see it anyway I may be wrong but that's my take on it
0: well, it's probably how for about 40 years we were bombarded by this uh, quite inaccurate studies that claim that fat is bad for you, but <laughs> carbohydrates and sugars are brilliant. Everybody yeah. eats sugar because yeah. it's good for you. Butter's yeah. bad.
1: <laughs> sure. And now they're saying the Americans recently have come out through their uh, FSDA, is it? Uh, and said that butter is now the new superfood.
0: Oh, totally. well well, what they've now realized i've actually been looking into this quite recently a lot and uh, basically what it comes down to is that all these studies that were completely inaccurate uh, looking at how fat may impact um, heart disease it's basically nobody was looking at the types of fat people were eating so what actually it comes down to is that yes if you eat lot of processed foods and trans fats and, and the bad kind of fats, yeah. then yes, it has an impact. But actually, if you're eating uh, real food, organic food and good fats that the body needs, it actually has very little, if any, impact True. on um, heart uh, related mm. diseases it's all the other stuff that mm. is the problem and that's mainly processed foods stress is a massive factor sure. uh, but fat is not to blame <laughs> so um, I think um, I think it's it's probably the same with the uh, we have to stop eating animals um, no ethical um, reasons uh, of vegans or um, anybody who doesn't eat that's very different and that sure. I can completely get behind yeah and um, we can't blame anybody for that. but blaming animals um, and um, and and um, every farmer on the planet for green green um, house gases and for uh, the environmental crisis is uh, it's completely wrong to my mind. And um, and also there is a massive difference to the way organic farmers do things and to the way industrial farmers do things. Sure. And one of the uh, things I love about your farm is that you are very environmentally aware and you're trying to reduce the carbon footprint, which a lot of the especially industrial intensive farms um, are guilty of. Exactly. But you're trying to go the other way. So tell me how your farm is different, how you're trying to reduce the carbon
1: footprint? Okay, we've done it in a number of ways. uh, And and I should say at the beginning that we haven't eliminated our carbon footprint because we do have to, because of the scale of the farming operation, we do have to use fossil fuels to run our tractors. Uh, Now, I, I believe, as an aside, that in 10, 15, 20 years' time, we will be running tractors that are driven by hydrogen. But that's a whole other story. But to address our own footprint on farm, uh, almost 30 years ago I planted about 30 acres of hardwood trees and those I am told assimilate about 80 tonnes of carbon per year which is a significant start to what we expel burning fossil fuels. Uh, We also have uh, wind turbine and solar photovoltaic panels that produce about 85% of the farm's requirement. not only in electricity needs but in heating needs and where where we are sitting at the minute <clears throat> is a kitchen that has underfloor electric heating driven by our wind turbine and solar panels we have an electric aga which again is driven by the wind and, and solar. Uh, we don't use any oil to heat the house we use our homegrown timber uh, from the hedges we have miles and miles and miles of hedges we don't Fail them down every year like most farmers do. We allow them to grow and we coppice them and dry them and either feed our log burner uh, or wood-burning stoves that we have in the house. So about 15 years ago, we ripped out our oil burner, which was consuming about 5,000 pounds worth of oil every year to heat the house. And since then, we have been using our own timber. So those are the methods that we have addressed. <clears throat> So far, uh, we have one of the lowest carbon footprints of any farm in the UK. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the, the template is here. If anybody is interested, the template is here for people to look at. We, we love people to come and visit the farm, whether they're farmers, uh, customers, schools. We do probably 20 school visits per year uh, because to me, uh, as you referred to earlier, education is one of the greatest and strongest tools to 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 understand how our, how our climate and environment works. Uh, and if we can if we can tell children of primary school age how our environment works, it stays with them all their lives. Uh, and I have to I have to have a plug now for the Ulster Farmers Union. Uh, they have recently taken an initiative called Dig It. Uh, it, it was taken uh, in parallel with the Education Authority. Uh, it's, it's a lovely glossy three-stage handout, uh, and, and it completely ties in with Key Stage 1, 2 and 3 within the Education Authority's, uh system. Uh, and kids are now given this in Primary 1 and they work their way through it uh, until they're in pr- Primary 7. Uh, the education authority also has decided recently it's useful uh, to have agriculture back on the agenda, and you can now do either a GCSE or an A level in agriculture. So we have we have kids from primary one right through to year fourteen uh, A level students coming to visit the farm uh, to look at different aspects of what we do. Uh, And the other thing that I do, not linked to that at all, is uh, I've been involved with a project called Salmon in the Classroom for 20 or more years now through the Irish Society, uh, which is a charity, a London-based charity, uh, that owns all the fishing rights in the County of Londonderry. Uh, And what we have done for a long time now is we have taken, it was a a cross-community project to start with, uh, as well as an environmental project. Uh, We we take freshly fertilised salmon eggs and put about 100 of these into an incubator uh, in two primary seven classrooms in the same town, if there's a Protestant and a Catholic school. Uh, And the kids then work together, they watch these eggs developing into baby salmon, uh, and in the spring of the year then the two schools are brought together and taken to a feeder stream where the salmon would naturally spawn, and they put these baby salmon back into the feeder stream at the stage where they're starting to feed naturally. And as I say, we've been doing this for 20 or more years, and I still now have grown-ups coming to me and saying, <clears throat> do you remember the day we went to your wee river to put the salmon back into it? <laughs> so it, it's, it's a lovely project. It, it, is, it is now <clears throat> uh, fully funded by the Irish Society. Uh, it's it's not a huge funding package, but it takes about Probably ten thousand pounds a year to do this whole thing, uh, but as to me again, it's a very worthwhile educational tool, because most children will simply drive past a river if they if they don't live beside one, they'll drive past a river and look and say, "Oh, there's a river," and that's it. They don't understand the life cycle uh, of that river, uh, and not only the salmon and the trout that live there, but the invertebrates and the even the the, the smaller. Animals that live in the river, uh, the associated animals like uh, water rats, otters, uh, kingfishers, hens, all sorts of things, uh, and we try and educate primary school kids about this. Uh, and and to, uh, to me, it's one of the most fascinating things because uh, the look of awe on a child's face when it sees a salmon egg developing into a baby salmon, and later on, we we take them to the hatchery and let them see adult salmon that are. 8, 10, 12 pounds in weight that have grown from this wee thing the size of a pea. They, they're they totally fascinated by it. And they, they remember that, that you know, it stays with them all their lives.
0: That is beautiful. And <clears throat> not mentioning how incredible way this is to bring together communities. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and the children at that age don't know to be biased towards each other, so they make friendships that last for a lifetime. And that, to me, is one of the more significant inputs that we we can have in a community is to take bias out of the community because we are all what we are by default of birth Uh, none of us chose to be born a catholic or a protestant or a hindu or a muslim or whatever Uh, and we to to me it's a way of learning to be much more tolerant uh, towards other people and if that's the only thing i ever taught anybody it would be one of the most uh, significant things that that i've done over my lifetime
0: this is beautiful and also I think it is so important from young age to even just coming on the farm and see the environment and, yeah. and see what happens on a farm and how food is grown and how animals are being raised, especially in organic yeah. way, the, the way you do it, when where they're really treated well and, and with respect. Um, It is so important because from a young age, it ensures a good relationship with food, knowing where the food comes from and the appreciation for food and how much work goes into it. Because I think one of the major problems in the modern lifetime, especially in modern civilization, the Western world, we are so far removed from how our food is made We are so used to go into a fast food restaurant or to a cafe and have a meal put on a plate in front of us. And we don't even realize where the food came from. Somebody had to grow it. Somebody had to prepare it. Somebody had to uh, deliver it. Somebody else had to cook it, come up with the recipe. Um, At the beginning, somebody had to plow the soil. Somebody had to plant the seeds. There's so much work going into food that we do not appreciate. Absolutely. And it's only in the recent years i realized, you know, sometimes we look at the plate and we don't think for a second, thanks to the farmer who grew my food. Because if it wasn't for people like you, we would starve to death. Of course. We can't survive on processed rubbish because it has zero nutritional value. And if we don't get the nutrients our bodies need... Our bodies will not work properly and we will become sick. We don't realise that you and other farmers like you, organic farmers, are absolutely crucial to our survival because we don't know anymore how to grow our own food and that's a real shame.
1: It is a real shame and and, I mean the understanding of of food production uh, is one of the most satisfying uh, things that I have. Uh, gained in my lifetime uh, because every, every system is different I mean milk production is different from beef production which is different from lamb production which is different from vegetable production and, and it's all, the interesting thing is it's all interlinked and if you have, if you have a healthy organic farm for instance, uh, we grow a lot of clover on farm uh, I'm lucky enough to have a number of bee colonies here Uh, and we produce honey every year. And the honey that we produce from not only the the clover, but all the myriad of plants that we have that we haven't destroyed by using herbicides. Uh, is just incredible. I mean, we we only sell honey in in small quantities and we sell it on the comb. Uh, So when you're buying comb honey, you're buying not only honey, but beeswax uh, and uh, uh, pollen, and a substance called propolis, which was one of the strongest antiseptic compounds known to man. Uh, and if the old people ever had toothache, they would have taken a piece of propolis from a beehive and chewed it, and that cured their toothache. It killed the infection or the uh, whatever was going on in their in their sore tooth. Uh, we have lost all of that, and if you now have toothache, you either get the tooth removed or, or you go on a course of antibiotics. Now... That to me is completely wrong because we have used and abused, and I use that term advisedly, we have abused antibiotics over the last 30 or 40 years, uh, so much so that we're at a stage now that if if the scientists cannot discover a new generation of antibiotics, uh, the majority of the the ones that we use now uh, have bacteria that are resistant to them. MRSA is a case in point. Uh, and MRSA developed from intensive pig farming in the United States. And all pigs farmed intensively in the, in the United States used to be fed methicillin, which is a synthetic penicillin, uh, right through their uh, life, their entire life, until I think about 10 days before they were slaughtered and it was taken off at that stage. And the reason for that was the disease buildup in the intensive pig farm units. Was so great that the majority of the pigs would either have had disease or died before they got to slaughter age, uh, and that was where the methicillin-resistant staph aureus developed. Was from intensive pig farming, uh, and you know th- th- that that to me is just uh, okay. We need antibiotics for certain things. Uh, if you go in for, say, major heart surgery, uh, antibiotics are essential that you don't get infections uh, either during or post-operation. But the abuse of them, uh, and again, I use the term advisedly, the abuse of them uh, is what has caused this uh, resistance to antibiotics. Uh, as far as I'm aware now, we're on fourth-generation antibiotics. Uh, there's nothing more in the pipeline, again, as far as I'm aware, and when, when we build up resistance to these fourth-generation antibiotics, uh, then we don't have antibiotics to use. And
0: this is one of the things <clears> that I really... Dislike about the intensive farming, never mind everything else, how the animals are treated, but also the fact that the animals are so overfed antibiotics. Yeah. And then obviously, if you eat animal that was fed so much antibiotics through their life, the antibiotics will obviously absorb sure. and you will be mm-hmm. eating those absorbed antibiotics with yeah. the animal. And um, I really... Again, we are so far removed from nature because when there were no antibiotics available, how did, in the old days, how did farmers treat their sick animals or how did they prevent animal disease? Hmm. They were using herbs.
1: Herbal remedies, absolutely. Natural medicine. Mm -hmm. But again, you've got to be cynical and say, uh, what would the pharmaceutical companies have to lose out of going back to herbal remedies? Okay, they, they could convert to hem- herbal remedies uh, and use them instead of antibiotics and, and all the other synthetic uh, compounds that they use, but it's, it's harder work. Uh, and the interesting thing that we see now with cows on the farm that have pretty much free-range access to the fields and hedges and the forest is that they will walk along hedges and pull minute plants out of that hedge uh, that they obviously need uh, or they, they need something that that herb contains. Uh, our cows, consistently we see them eating ivy leaves uh, and everybody has this concept that ivy is poisonous. Uh, that's nonsense. Uh, ivy leaves are, are a great source of nutrition to animals. They, they must contain something that the animals want, otherwise they wouldn't eat them. Uh, it's only the berries of, holly, or of, of ivy that are poisonous. Uh, but we have ivy plants all around the farm and you can see each and every one of them is completely bare of leaves up as far as the cow can reach. Uh, they love ash leaves. Uh, they will eat sycamore and hawthorn leaves when they're young leaves, but they won't touch them as mature leaves. Uh, they will actually eat... I've seen cows eating nettles and thistles. Uh, they do eat dogwoods, uh, contrary to popular belief. Uh, the reason they don't eat dogmins in intensive situations is... Dogmans become very bitter with high levels of nitrogen fertilizer uh, and the cows will not eat them. Under an organic system, cows will eat the leaves off dogmans every time they go to a field. Uh, so again, the more we mess with nature, uh, the more we put it out of balance and the more we have to try and then redress that with something that is man-made uh, and something that's man-made is never as good as something that is natural.
0: Absolutely. I, I can't but agree with that. And, um, now one of the things I wanted to ask you is so you come from a, a family of farmers but was it something that you always knew you were going to do from a young age? or Did you go to university thinking oh I'll just take over the family trade or was it something that you maybe changed your mind about?
1: No it was something I always wanted to do because growing up on a farm to me anyway was great fun because there was always an adventure around the corner so there was a tree to climb or a river to paddle in or a river to swim across uh, or fish to be caught in the river or otters to be chased up and down the river. It was all, it was all great fun. Uh, and, and my father had, had, quite, had quite a number of staff here because there was very little machinery in the early days. Uh, and when they were milking cows, they used to set us up in the cows' backs. So we sat in cows' backs during the milking. We played with the calves in the straw bedded houses it was all just simple fun, and it, was, and it was great fun. It was a healthy lifestyle, uh, and, and we grew, grew up to be healthy and uh, thoroughly enjoyed ourselves.
0: What a great way to conclude the first part of this podcast. There is absolutely nothing I can add to that and if you want to listen to the rest of this interview, part two will be available shortly or depending on when you're listening to this, it might already be available on our playlist on SoundCloud or iTunes. There is so much more to talk about and we are kicking off the next part with the discussion on milk, milk production and dairy products. If you'd like to know more about Culmore Organic Farm, you can visit www.culmoreorganicfarm.com. That's C-U-L-M-O-R-E, organicfarm.com, all in one word. I was thinking really hard about what recipe to leave you with this time, and in the end, I chose a very simple vegetable juice. Coming to winter most of us tend to indulge on food more than any other time of the year simply because of the cold. Um, The cold means our bodies tend to use more energy for heat and therefore we require a little bit more nutrition and well insulation I suppose. Eating more means also putting more strain on our digestive system and this is when This juice can come in really handy, so let's make some simple beetroot, lemon and ginger juice with raw apple cider vinegar. It's very simple, you need one medium organic beetroot, one piece of ginger, size depends on how spicy you like it. I tend to use about double of a thumb size uh, piece because I'm crazy about ginger, but you can use less than that. Preferably the ginger root would also be organic. You also need half a medium lemon. Again organic and unwaxed preferably. And one to two tablespoons of raw organic apple cider vinegar. If your ingredients are organic and I do recommend that. um, You do not have to peel them. If they aren't do peel them please. Put your beetroot, lemon and ginger through your juicer. Make sure you've removed all the pits from the lemon. Once it's juiced stir in the apple cider vinegar and down it about 15 to 20 minutes before you eat. I swear by it. Um, Remember, all of our recipes are available through our social media. And if you'd like to download them in a handy PDF format, go to our Facebook group page file section where you can find this recipe, as well as all the recipes from our previous episodes. And if you'd like more healthy plant-based recipes, you can order our cookbook, which can be found on Amazon or iBooks under the title The Sweet Spud Feast Your Way to a Healthy Gut. You can also email me for personal order if you live in the UK. If you order on Amazon, the books can be posted within the European Union. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a comment on SoundCloud or social media. Um like, share, or even better, rate us on iTunes. Those seemingly useless stars really help us to reach wider audience and I would be really grateful for them. And that's it for this time. We are now officially caught up on missed episodes through my autumn podcasting break and should be back to our normal fortnightly podcasting as of next week. Have a lovely week and... Next time you're going food shopping, try switching to local and organic whenever possible and stay healthy. Until next time, bye! As every week, your host is myself, Susanna from the Sweet Spud, music by Mark J. Adair, and artwork by Gemma O'Hagan. Thank you for listening.